I'm trying to open up conversations between women and people who've given birth and inviting all of us to share our stories and feel validated by them, no matter what they are. And the power of that in a room, and even the power of that in a conversation, like the one that we're having right now, is so life-giving. It's intense, but you'd be shocked. No one asks people to tell their birth stories. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Between 30 to 40% of people who give birth in America describe their births as traumatic. If you're someone who has experienced the range of complications and interventions in the American healthcare system, or you're alarmed at the maternal mortality rates in the United States, this episode is a good one. Alison Yarrow, an award-winning journalist, author, and speaker, joins host Sarah K. Peck on a deep dive into the flaws of the managed care system. Her book, Birth Control, The Insidious Power of Men Over Motherhood, takes a hard look at modern medicine and the systemic failures that make pregnancy and childbirth controlled, traumatizing, and injuring for far too many people. Yarrow convincingly recasts the country's maternal health care system as needlessly dehumanizing. The New York Times writes in a review of her book, which came out in July 2023. Join Sarah and Allison for a riveting and wrenching conversation about why the birth system is so broken and what we can do to heal ourselves and the birth process at large. One of the hardest things about being a CEO or being a manager or a leader is finding and carving out space to think. That is one of the reasons why I made the Wise Women's Council. Twice a month, we bring wise, vetted experts in to support you in your leadership development. Our core business trainings help CEOs and leaders make complex decisions more easily, learn how to say no, learn how to ask for help, and build a life and a business based on whole person leadership principles. Our leadership sessions support you in deepening your own internal wisdom, building at your personal growth edges, and improving your stamina and energy reserves. It's called the Wise Women's Council. We've been running it for six years now, and we open only twice a year for enrollments, once in the spring and once in the fall. If you want to find out more about this program and what people have to say about it, head over to startupparent.com slash WWC. Oh, Allison, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'd like to start by grounding us in today. What time did you wake up this morning and what was the first thing that you did? I woke up about 6.30, which is very late, actually. My kids are finally starting to sleep a bit more. So 6.30 kind of feels like I earned something or I won something. My kids are 8, 4, and 6. And I was actually the first one awake, which is very also rare. This is like a total anomaly morning. It might be in part because we're not at home. but. I woke up, I made coffee, and then shortly thereafter, there was a pitter-patter and someone else was awake with me. You had like your own thought first thing in the morning, like you and your brain were one in a quiet moment. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, my first thought was, should I go back to sleep? I should probably go back to sleep. But I didn't because I felt rested. I actually got a full night's sleep. Nobody woke me up to go to the bathroom, nothing. That's phenomenal. 
I'm laughing a little bit because it's 6.30. It's so late. I'm sleeping in again. It's like said by parents only. <laughs> parents and caretakers everywhere. So you usually wake up earlier than that? What time do you normally wake up? Before six is somewhat regular just because of the kids. They typically go to bed somewhat early and wake up somewhat early. But I think, you know, they're just summer is sort of dog days of summer. It's the end of summer and we're just doing a lot. We're active. And I think they're really tired. And I think they're just sleeping like a little bit later. Even 20 minutes makes a huge difference, right? Just like an extra. Okay. So take me through this morning. I know you're not at your house or your home. You're somewhere else. But what does the morning look like for you? I mean, usually the morning is sort of getting everyone together and getting them everything they need and breakfast and all the things that go in the backpacks and getting them to their separate school locations or throughout the summer it was camp. Then it's often after I've and my husband have dropped everyone where they need to go. I like to exercise if I can. I really feel like that's important in the morning. It's important for my mental health. I just feel better sort of throughout the day if I've managed to do something like that early on in the day. But it is kind of in opposition to the fact that writing kind of works best for me in the morning. And so I kind of have to figure out how I'm going to get that in, though, to be honest, because I've been promoting a book. I haven't been doing as much writing and sort of generative work, but I want to be doing more of that now that we're sort of coasting through the book promo stuff. I'm in a group of author friends and they nicknamed this part of the book phase the violent marketing phase, <laughs> which I think a lot of authors know. Yeah, it's intense. Where are you in that? I love this part of it. Writing is so lonely. Reporting is really fun and exciting because there's a lot of idea sharing and it does feel more social. But the process of birth control was about five years because of the pandemic. And so there was actually quite a big gap between sort of selling the book and then reporting the book and then a lag because lockdown happened and I stopped working to care for my, at the time, six-month, two- and four-year-olds. And then there was sort of a lot of writing and editing and all of that work, which I enjoy it so much, but it's very lonely. And so I actually love being in the world talking about this because it's the kind of book where... I'm trying to open up conversations between women and people who've given birth and inviting all of us to share our stories and feel validated by them, no matter what they are. And the power of that in a room and even the power of that in a conversation like the one that we're having right now is so life-giving. It's intense, but you'd be shocked. No one asks people to tell their birth stories. For me, part of the marketing of this book, you know, if you want to call it that, is like, Let's start a conversation about this thing that is tremendous, that humanity would not exist without, that is like our bodies at their mightiest, that has become trauma and has become risk and has become all of these things. And I think we just need spaces to talk about that. And so for me, yes, it's intense to do lots of interviews all the time and to constantly be sort of in the spotlight performative, but I see this as how we get to change. Absolutely. And starting these conversations, starting them in so many different places. My goodness, I want to ask you, like, when you're bringing these people together around these conversations, what are the conversations you want people to talk about? Like, what are the topics? Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, I'm finding so much power in a group of even 20 or 30 women and people who've been touched by birth because we can sort of all go around really quickly 
And maybe this is a group of people, often it's a group of people, some of whom know each other, but others do not. So quickly sort of what's your name? And then we go around and sort of everybody, I don't know, the prompt is really simple. Share something that you feel about motherhood or share something that you feel about giving birth. And so it gives everybody, even the other day, it was a group where there were a number of men and they had fascinating interactions with the healthcare system to share that completely mirrored some of the sort of coercive and abusive techniques and procedures and experiences that women and birthing people have when they enter the hospital to give birth. And so I'm interested in, I'm interested in a few things. There was a CDC study that came out this week that found just rampant mistreatment and discrimination in the experience of having kids in this country. And for my book, I surveyed about 1,300 women and birthing people about their experiences, and I found the same thing. I found rampant discrimination and mistreatment. And yet, in the CDC survey, of those who described mistreatment, still 75% of them were satisfied with their birth experiences. So they said, yes, there was mistreatment, but also, yes, I'm satisfied. And that discordance to me is so interesting. And when you gather a group of people to talk about these experiences, you see it come to life. You see that, yes, I was mistreated. I didn't want to be talked to like this. The birth was traumatizing. I was told I almost died. And also yet, you know, I had a baby. I'm so happy. I'm a parent. This was beautiful. It's all of it is true. And I think that we need to sort of untangle that and we need to sort of celebrate that discordance and also dig into it. Oh, so much of what you're saying resonates so much. I was with a group of three men. We were doing an interview for Glassdoor and Fishbowl. And the question I asked each of them was, tell me about your postpartum experience. Tell me what it was like for you. And everybody has a story and an experience. And just like you're saying, not one feeling, Lots of different reactions, emotions, feelings, sensations, like confusion, bewilderment, overwhelm, fear. So tell me a little bit more. You've dug into this. You've interviewed so many people. And you write that between 30 and 40% of American women describe their births as traumatic. Why is that number so high? What does that mean? The number of births described as traumatic is so high because of the birth system in this country. It is routine in this country that birth is traumatic. And that is because we have a system, 99% of people give birth in the hospital. And that system is a managed care system, which means that we are individuals giving birth. We need individual care from providers. And yet when we enter the hospital, many people who are in labor and giving birth are cared for by just a few providers. And so what does that look like? From their perspective, it needs to look like efficiency. It needs to mean that we move people through this space as fast as possible. So that means when you enter the hospital and you are in labor, say you're in active labor, they want to give you a pelvic exam. They want to determine how dilated is your cervix. And if it's dilated enough, we will admit you. Then they want to say, okay, so now we want to track your heart rate and the baby's heart rate. We're going to strap a band to your belly, an electronic fetal monitor, and we're going to chart your labor. And then it doesn't seem like you're progressing as quickly as we want you to. So let's give you synthetic oxytocin or Pitocin to kind of speed up those contractions or maybe start them if they're not happening. And then, you know, we're still looking at our watch here. Maybe it's dinner time and like the doctor's ready to go home or maybe they're just sick of you and you've been taking too long. Let's have surgery now. We're going to wheel you into surgery and we're going to remove this baby abdominally. And none of what I've described, which is called the cascade of interventions, is rooted in any good evidence. None of it. 
And it's also all presented as care that you need, not care that you can choose. And so what the system does is it moves you through as quickly as possible because that is what makes the system money. You give birth in a labor and delivery suite because it is a room that can be converted into a surgical suite. And even if you don't need surgery, you have to give birth in that room. They need you in that room. If you've ever wondered why, you know, people show up to the hospital in labor and it's full. I mean, I, with one of my labors, I had to sort of circle outside of triage for over an hour because there wasn't a room for me. And the reason they couldn't just put me in another room is because they can't bill as high for that room. They need to bill at the rate that the labor and delivery room can command. And so that's why they want everybody in those rooms. It's not a safety issue. We know that birth is a physiologic process in the body, but under the managed care system, it's been made into a procedure in a hospital. And we know from the rates of trauma that you mentioned and the maternal mortality rate being as high as it's ever been in my lifetime and your lifetime, more than doubling in the last two decades, that this is not working. And yet we really are not examining the people and the place We're not looking at hospital systems and saying, what are you doing to fix this? And none of them are really taking responsibility. I was just thinking about how, from my own experience, birth is really a challenge because you don't know what you're getting into. You've never done it before and you can't learn the experience without going through the experience. So you turn to other people. You turn to what are so-called experts and what's going on around you. You'd be like, how am I supposed to get this done? And I think that's one of the most bewildering and confusing and frustrating things is When you're in the hospital, you're like, can you help me? Like, tell me, what am I supposed to do at this juncture? I've never been through this before. And so you're placing a tremendous amount of trust in experts. And they may be experts in a certain domain or dimension, but the incentives might not be aligned in terms of really looking out for you. Can you define managed care? You've said that term, and I just want to be clear about what that means. Managed care is basically like few people taking care of many people. That's essentially what it is in a hospital environment. So it's when we have an obstetrics profession that the first thing they learn in school is C-section. The first thing they learn how to do is operate. Mainly, they're not witnessing physiologic birth, so they don't know what it looks like. They don't know what it sounds like, and they don't know how to support it. This means that in a managed care system, routine care is based on tradition and not evidence, not the best scientific evidence, and certainly not what people experiencing childbirth want and need. We know from good research that the midwifery model of care, which considers birthing people and women the experts in their own bodies and protects physiologic birth and only intervenes with it if there is an absolute synergy and communication and conversation about what that looks like, we know that model is safer. Even the doctors at the CDC who were sharing with the media about the study earlier in the week, they said, we need to see midwifery model of care sort of in hospital systems. And that's not what's happening. It's supported by the evidence, but it's not happening. And that's because of tradition. And so what we need is we need a system and Many experts also believe that this would reduce the maternal mortality rate. It would certainly reduce the amount of trauma we're seeing to have this more individualized care model rather than a managed care model. I have so many questions. I'm going to take notes right here because I have like different pieces of follow-up. Number one, I'd love you to talk a little bit about trauma because we're talking about this 30 to 40%. And so for people listening who, I'm going to guess that half of the people listening have given birth 
if not more, or they're thinking about going into it. How do you define trauma? And can you give some examples of what it might look like? A lot of people have heard the term trauma, but wouldn't necessarily associate it with childbirth or with after childbirth. What we're talking about when we say trauma, it's a very specific diagnosis that refers to something that's happening in the brain, especially with PTSD. That's something happening in the brain, and that requires a different kind of therapy and care that's often like a brain-based kind of therapy or care. We began to understand PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder through the lens of military men coming back from war. That was sort of the first time that that was discovered and diagnosed, and that was the population of people for whom we thought that was a problem. Really weren't looking, I mean, in the mid-century when the profession of sort of the mind was more was dominated by white men. We were looking at other men for this. And then we come to realize as we do more research in the book, I profile a therapist who they hadn't really included postpartum women or women at all for that matter in the definition of what PTSD was when it was sort of first put into the DSM and when it was being diagnosed and treated. But what she realized was that she began to treat her patients who were postpartum the way she was treating her military patients. She had learned in school that only people who sort of witnessed death could have PTSD. But then when she saw these symptoms presenting in people who had babies, she started doing the same kinds of therapies with them and they were very effective. So what we know, not all trauma is post-traumatic stress disorder, but trauma refers to when you witness or even someone close to you is part of something that makes your body sort of go into a fight or flight response and where you feel as if your life is in danger. And so it's so interesting when it comes to childbirth. I mean, there is such important research being done on PTSD in birthing people. There's a lab at Harvard that I write about. Sharon Deckel is sort of leading that lab. And she's sort of looking at this in specifically the postpartum population. And what she sees is that Postpartum depression, we all have heard that term, right? We know what that is now, in part because it's in the DSM. Postpartum PTSD, there's still a lot of debate about whether or not it belongs in the DSM, because is it any different than actual PTSD? But an argument to put it in the DSM is that it would lead to more diagnosis, more treatment, not mistaking it for postpartum depression, which happens often. And by the way, there's no universal postpartum maternal mental health screening that's happening in this country that absolutely needs to be happening so that we can actually catch this stuff. But what's so important, I think, also to know about trauma, I think there's an assumption that, okay, perhaps you have gotten to the place in your head where you could accept that birth could be traumatic. Well, you must imagine that the most intervened with birth is the most traumatic kind of birth, whereas to birth, you know, without any intervention means no trauma at all. And the best trauma research that we have actually finds that Trauma in childbirth happens, and this is from a nurse and researcher, Cheryl Beck, who's done sort of the most work on this. Trauma occurs in birth when people are left in the dark, when they don't know what's going on, when they don't know what's happening to their body. And that could be in any kind of birth scenario. The people who are less likely to experience trauma in their birth are the people who are being communicated with, who are the center of their experience. They are the expert in their body, and they are being interacted with with that level of respect from their providers. That's right. Being included, being told what's happening to you, especially if you're, if it's beyond your ability to be in charge, like if it's like, hey, we're going to do this now, we're going to move this now. It is so 
critical for feeling agency and control and like respect. And oof, I have feelings coming up. If you can't tell, I have feelings coming up. I've been through two births myself. I understand so much of this. So one of the things uh, a therapist told me once is like, there's like little T trauma and then like capital T trauma. And something I learned that I didn't realize is like everyone goes through trauma. Like it's part of the human experience. Things are going to be traumatic. You're going to be a kid. You're going to fall over. You're going to scrape. Like you're going to get injured. Things happen. But then it depends like what happens to your brain in relation to that experience and what progresses afterwards is really important. And are you living in the present moment? Like, are you reliving over and over again? And this is part of the PTSD and people listening. I am not an expert in this. So like, go read about this. Neither am I. Right? <laughs> we are writers and researchers and thinkers, but other people know more about this. But uh, these are things that I've learned. And PTSD can be when you are reliving as though it's in the present. Flashbacks or flash, whatever they're called, right into the present moment, and you're reliving the experience. And you cannot seem to orient yourself in time away from that experience or have that experience change meaningfully over time. So to be like, oh, this thing happened, and I'm integrating it, and I'm healing from it, and I'm telling a story about it, that is moving through it and staying in that kind of like having adrenaline shocks or cortisol spikes. That can be part of the symptom of, oh, you know what? I'm having trouble reconciling this. I am traumatized from this. So I just wanted to insert those two things about trauma. Now, can you tell me some specific examples? I think that it's hard sometimes to know what trauma can look like in that I would say I hear a lot of people say, oh, but it wasn't, that's not trauma. It wasn't that bad. There's a lot of dismissal, I think. And trauma can look like anything, right? It can really be anything. So I don't know, do you have examples from your book of different experiences that can be traumatic for people? I mean, I think my default here is to just believe women and birthing people when they say that they've had a traumatic experience even if that's sort of a word that people reach for because they hear it in the culture, in the yeah. sort of in society. Though there is kind of an effort right now, it seems, to dismiss trauma as something that is sort of not valid. And I'm, I'm actually very concerned about that effort when yeah. we have the rates of postpartum PTSD that we do, you know, some like 15%, and that's of the people who actually report. I think the rates are always higher for these things. Right. We don't catch a lot of it because we don't screen. But there are all kinds of stories. I've heard a lot of them associated with C-section, actually. I interview at length a woman in the book named Latoya. I found her because she had written this beautiful essay about her own C-section and sort of describing how it felt and the sort of dehumanizing aspects of that and how those were traumatic. Many people don't know when you have a C-section, they strap you to the table. You can't move. And that's to protect the doctor. That has nothing to do with you. She felt like her providers were not listening to her. They were, she thought, because she was a woman and because she was a Black woman, perhaps that her pain was being ignored. She had to ask her husband to ask for more pain meds because she wasn't being listened to. And then, you know, she heard her doctors um, discussing, like, passing a menu back and forth and, like, discussing what they were going to order for lunch while they were performing her operation. So all of this, and it's interesting, though, so... When it comes to trauma, all of this to her was very traumatic, but she's a writer. So what she did was she wrote about this experience. And I did the same thing after my birth. I wrote down yeah. what happened. And I think some of the best sort of model for 
understanding and processing like little T trauma. We're not talking about PTSD, which appears in the body like you were describing earlier and brings you back to that moment of trauma in an instant out of your control. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of trauma that's much more common, actually. Midwives after home births often will encourage people to have a conversation about birth. What happened? How did it go? What was good? What was not so good? Let's process this together. Let's talk about it. Let's have a narrative around it. And in our country, in this managed care model, that sort of traditional routine model, it's like, you've been the patient, the baby is out, 24 to 48 hours later, you're headed home. If you're one of a quarter of people giving birth in this country, you're back to work two weeks later. Like, we don't have time for your story. We don't have time for you to understand this. We actually don't want to talk to you about what happened because we certainly don't want to take on any risk that could expose us to anything of the legal variety. So there isn't this opportunity to talk about and understand and process what we've been through. And I think that little shift, I mean, so much of this is like, we can really improve birth in this country with so many small shifts. One of them would be encouraging people to with a partner, just go through their story. What happened? What happened? And what happened for you versus what happened for me? What did you see happen to me? What did I see happen to you? I remember with the birth of my first child, because of the timing of it, it was 2.30 in the morning, my partner had to leave the hospital until 6 a.m. He wasn't allowed to stay. So an hour after the arrival, they kicked him out. And there he is. He's walking around Central Park wondering what to do with himself because we don't have a hotel. He's not allowed to stay in the room. And then he comes back at like 6 a.m. And he watched the sunrise and he just wants to meet this kid. He just wants to be with this kid. And in those three intervening hours, I didn't clot properly. The placenta came out, but they didn't contract down. And so I started hemorrhaging a lot of blood. And so the nurses had to go back in with their entire arm and go in and like massage my uterus from the inside. It's like fist punching, super painful. And I lost about two liters of blood, which is, I think the human body is like six liters of blood or eight liters, I don't know. And so like, just a small thing, almost died while he was gone. All's well and good. And I will tell that story in other places for my own healing, but it's, those things are traumatic. Those things are a really big deal. And the fact that he wasn't allowed to stay is still just, the only word I have is weird, but that's not the right word. I'm so sorry that happened to you. He should have been able to be there to advocate for you. That they can force a partner to leave is just unconscionable. Really, you should have when you're giving birth, every person you want with you should be able to be with you. You're support people. He could have been there to advocate for you. And I'm so glad that you're okay. This is a story that I've heard a lot. This is a story I've heard often because the hospital managed care system, there's no advocate for you, for me, for us there, right? They're caring for too many people. They can't keep watch over you. And that's why you need a doula. That's why you need your partner. That's why you need that kind of support. And it all comes back to money because the only reason that happened was we were in a shared recovery room with the curtain in between because we didn't pay for the extra private room after the birth. So you're in a shared room and you're not allowed to have the non-birthing people stay in the room overnight because of the risk. Speaking of your book, you can't have a man in the room with another woman. It's partly gender because men are too dangerous because that's the world that we live in. So my male partner had to leave because it's too, anyway. And also 
and capitalism. I couldn't pay for the extra room. We're going to take a quick break. If you are thinking about joining us in the Wise Women's Council, make sure you apply to join us during our spring or our fall enrollment. Head to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council. All right, let's get back into it. Back to your book. I want to ask you a little bit about the maternal mortality rates too, because you mentioned those because they're so high and they're so high in our lifetime and because racism and classism are a part of this. Can you speak to what's happening with the maternal mortality rates and why it's so devastating? The maternal mortality rates are devastating. And I think it's important that they are in the headlines now and that they've been in the news and that they're remaining in the news. The reason we know more about maternal mortality at all is because in the last decade or so, we have these review boards and states that are reporting these numbers for the first time. And so it's really important that we understand this so that we can stop it. I mean, it's thought that about 80% of these deaths are preventable. And what I would like to see, what's not happening in the news and in the headlines is looking deeply at this model of care and its culpability. There's always a lot of finger pointing around the maternal mortality rates. And The kind of finger pointing you see the most often and that to me is the most disturbing is that kind that blames women. So when we say older mothers, obesity, hypertension, COVID, underlying conditions, healthcare deserts, all of those explanations blame women. And women are not to blame for the maternal mortality rate. We have the best technology for emergency birth scenarios The truth is that most scenarios are not emergencies, but if we have emergencies, we have the technology and the care there available for us. And yet, the kind of care that is too intervening in birth, that provides too much technology when it's not needed, that is a managed care model that puts physiologic birth on a clock and throws all kinds of drugs and surgery at it for no reason, is highly dangerous, is creating all of the problems that we're talking about. C-section increases the risk for postpartum hemorrhage, for hypertension, for sepsis, for all of these factors that are the leading causes of maternal mortality. And we're not making that connection. And the other thing that's important to know is that Black women have the highest C-section rate. They are the group With the highest C-section rate, they're also the group that is dying the most from childbirth. And we have to look at that and we have to wonder. So there must be a connection here. It's also a group for whom pain is not believed. And there are threads and historical underpinnings of this that I report on in the book that are important to consider here. There's a theory called the obstetrical dilemma that was sort of concocted by anthropologists in the mid-century. And it was devised to sort of explain why the birthing body was flawed. It was this idea that we as humans produce these babies that they're like screaming meatloaves. They can't do anything. They can't get up and run and walk like a horse or a giraffe. And that's a flaw in our design. That's a flaw in human design. And it's because the birthing hips are too narrow for the head to get big enough 
to come out and sort of be fully formed. And so there's a lot of writing from, from journals and sort of historical medical texts from the turn of the century about white birthing bodies being frail and fragile and very much in need of this sort of medical arts and care and of Black birthing bodies being more animalistic and pain tolerant. And so you can sort of see the fingerprints of how we're cared for today in these early theories, which at the time were not even considered to be theories. They were just assumed to be truth. I cannot. For people listening, my mouth is like wide open, was gaping. This is horrendous. It's absolutely horrible. What you said about not blaming women you can see this. You can connect the dots in so many different ways. I was just arguing with someone on Twitter about this. They're like, well, maybe it's that way because of blank. There's a name for it, and I don't know what it is. It was when you look at the evidence, then you just say, oh, it's because of that thing that you're looking at. So it's like, oh, you know what? This certain group of people have a higher C-section rate. It's because they are different, or it's because they something, something, something. It's the blame theory of just not actually being curious or scientific or thoughtful, or kind, or compassionate, or anything else when you're looking in this and asking, why is this happening? And instead saying, oh, it's happening because of them. I want to ask you about informed consent also. Before I ask you about informed consent, can you, this, this obstetric dilemma, what is that? You just mentioned it. Say that one again. Tell me about that again. So the obstetric dilemma is this idea that human hips, women's hips, are innately flawed. We can, we're designed to give birth, and yet we give birth to these babies that need our care, that can't just get up and run and walk. And that's a design yeah. flaw, that female hips are just not big enough to, to be able to do that, to birth well. And so what the obstetric dilemma does, and the anthropologist Holly Dunsworth was sort of the first person that I came across who was able to say, this is actually a theory, this is not truth, and yes. to disprove it along with others because she herself had given birth and yeah. had been intervened with. The obstetric dilemma, to my mind, excuses intervention in Got every it. childbirth because it says that your hips are flawed. You can't really give birth. Let me just get in there. I'm a white guy. Let me just get in there with my tools and my drugs and my surgical scissors. And like, we'll take care of this for you because your hips are intrinsically flawed. Yeah. To summarize the last 100 years of birth in Western slash America, it's early 19th century. You know what? We're going to lay you on your back and we're going to chloroform you or we're just going to give you twilight sleep. We're just going to drug you out of this. and Just go away. Just go, go away. away. <laughs> and like the women would still be screaming. They just didn't remember the screaming. It's not like it was easier for them. It's horrifying if you actually look at it. And men like, we're going to just take over and now we're going to get these giant tongs and like yank the baby out and you're still going to be on your back. If you look at it, it's very terrifying, which remind me at the end, I want to make sure to ask you, what can a woman or a person giving birth, it's like someone who's pregnant right now, listening to this, who's terrified, I want to make sure we get to, what are some things that we can do if it feels like this is totally out of control? However, I'm going to take us first through the obstetric dilemma. So this is fascinating. It's like, oh, because your hips are flawed, therefore I can do anything. That's it. It's like, okay, fine. I'm going to rescue you. I'm, I'm going to rescue you and you. your baby. You frail little thing. Like <sighs> <sighs> you guys, I'm going to have so many sounds. Have you read about the metabolic theory of gestational age? Have you seen this paper? What is this paper? The idea that we give birth, quote unquote, early to kids because their heads are too big is not about our hips at all. Our hips are fine. Our hips can crack open. Our hips are flexible. There's 
stuff in the middle of the kids' heads fold in half. They're two plates. Like, really, it's like, I don't know, pulling a sock out of a sock. The truth is we're kind of magic. We're able we're to do magic. all of this. There's another theory out there that's not getting very much traction, but it's that we run out of the metabolic capacity to create food fast enough for the child inside of us. So what we do over nine months, this is all a theory, is we pack on a lot of fat onto our hips, into our bed, like everywhere. So not only are we growing this baby, we're also supposed to be gaining a lot of weight. And the reason we're gaining this weight is because we're going to translate it into breast milk later. So we're storing up for the metabolic needs of this child. So the first nine months are growing it, and then you bring it out, and then you're feeding it in another way because you can't actually sustain your own metabolism and your baby's metabolism past that point. And I was like, this is fascinating. Yes, that's Holly Dunsworth's theory. Yes. It's once the baby's metabolic needs outpace the ability of the mother to meet them, that's when labor starts. That's when the baby is born. And I would also throw into that, once the baby's out, multiple people can feed them. That's a very communal point of view versus an individualistic point of view. And I have no evidence to back that up. That's just me speaking into a soapbox like a white man on a podcast. (laughs) Well, and the other piece of it, just to mention, is that this obstetrical dilemma theory evolved by just looking at bone. Right. If we just look at bones, we're going to have one interpretation. And yet the metabolic theory, it looks at hormones, it looks at all of these other muscles and tissues and dietary needs and these other factors that obviously so much is going into growing a baby and giving birth. That's not just bones. We didn't learn about fascia until I don't know the year, but for a long time when people are dissecting cadavers, they would take that fascia is if you eat chicken and you see that like white filmy stuff over the top of it and you like peel it off to get the clean chicken breast to put in your pan, that's fascia. It's like the connective tissue surrounding the muscles. And people, when they were dissecting cadavers in medical school, would just throw it away. They're just like, oh, this is not necessary. And it wasn't until later we're like, oh, there's like a massive network of communication happening throughout the body with this specific system. Maybe we should pay attention to it. Also, I don't think women were included in any studies like pre-1993. So basically, huge skepticism towards the medical industry. Okay, now I wanted to ask you, what is informed consent and why is it not really? (laughs) I guess start with what is informed consent? Informed consent is the law. It means that you have the right when you enter a hospital to have any procedure or drug or intervention explained to you. You have the right to understand what is on offer. And your doctor, nurse, provider of any kind, they have to explain it to you and they have to equalize your ability to say yes or to say no. They can't manipulate you into having some sort of procedure, taking a drug. They can't say, climb up on this table, we're going to examine you now. That's coercive, and that's not adhering to the best practices of informed consent and refusal. What happens more often, I mean, one lawyer said to me in the book that informed consent is the law, but in obstetrics, it doesn't apply. (laughs) So this one particular profession, women birthing babies, We just sort of throw informed consent out the window. And it's also really difficult to, I'm told, convince juries and judges that didn't she need it? Like, yes, she didn't consent to that episiotomy. Yes, they cut her perineum without telling her, which, by the way, in my survey, about half of people who had episiotomies, they did not give their permission for that procedure. And this was also found in bigger studies like the Listening to Mothers study. Many people who receive episiotomies do not consent to them. 
And juries and judges will say, well, I mean, wasn't an emergency? Wasn't her life at stake? And you know what? Even if that's the case, there's such trouble getting past this idea that women are in charge of their bodies and the experts, and they have the right to deny care, even life-saving care. It doesn't matter. You have that right. And when you are not making those decisions, that right is being flagrantly violated. You are being consented to care. Yes. Yes. Justine just wrote on the notes too. She said, if you don't do this, the baby is at risk is not informed consent. To tell someone that you have to do this or your baby will die or your life is at risk to try to manipulate you into some sort of care is not informed consent and refusal. That's consenting someone to care. And an episiotomy without consent is medical battery. But what recourse do people actually have? It's against the law, but what can you do? It's so difficult to find any kind of remedy because often hospital systems will argue this was what was necessary. I mean, I've had, you know, an OB said to me, the only C-section you get sued for is the one that you don't do. And another OB has said, It's really like if I do a C-section and I pull that baby out and the baby's blue and lackluster, good job for me because I saved that baby. But if I do a C-section and I pull the baby out and the baby looks perfect, it's still great to be me. I saved that baby. Look at that perfect baby. Like either way, it's really good to be me. And it's really hard to know when you're in a vulnerable position. I hesitate a bit to call labor a vulnerable position because we also are sort of at our most powerful in that moment. There's so much power that happens during childbirth. We've literally created a human being and we're pushing it out of our body. But it's been seized from us with all of this consented care and all of this fear-mongering and all of this language and threatening people with stuff they don't need. Yeah. Oh, you're making me think of so many different things. It's a lot. It's a lot. There's no recourse. I think that you are in a vulnerable place because... In as much as your ability to talk might go away, you're so focused on various things. Like, it's hard to think when you're using your body that much. It can be hard to then not only think, but to communicate and to articulate. And communication is really hard when we are not in labor, right? Communication is hard just to tell someone like, hey, I need this thing. Did you hear me? What's going on? Do you understand what I mean? And this is why I think it's so important to have any advocate with you that you can have during the process. Someone who knows what you want and can speak on your behalf and can translate. And this is often the role of a doula, but doulas can be really expensive for people who don't have the means. And it can also be really challenging when your partner or your spouse isn't, if you have one, right? Because there's, what, 40% of moms are single mothers in America. So if there's a partner or spouse who also struggles with communication, my partner or spouse is an amazing human being, but speaking up and saying no to a professional can be a really hard thing to do. And especially when he's trying to gauge what's going on is having his own emotional process for the birth, like being completely overwhelmed is being instructed to help with the labor and delivery and then also doesn't know, right, has never been through a birth before. So parsing all that's really hard. So I want to ask you about what can someone do realistically? You want to have a kid, you have maybe past the hurdle of getting pregnant, which can be a huge hurdle for people, can take years, can there's fertility challenges, et cetera. And you're finally in a place where you're like, I'm going to give birth. This episode is terrifying. This conversation is terrifying. So what can we do? I think there's actually a lot here that's very empowering too. And I'm going to hopefully get there with this answer. Wonderful. It's important to know that 
Routine birth in this country shouldn't be about playing defense. The birthing body we know needs six things that are really simple. They're often denied in the hospital. But if you know going into it that these are the things I need, you can make better decisions about how to orient your care. You need quiet. You need darkness. You need to be able to close your eyes and go into your body. You need deep breathing. None of these things are expensive. None of these things are impossible. They're hard to get in hospitals where there are bright lights shining and people like bursting in and tons of strangers you don't know. Take that into account when you're choosing the place where you want to give birth. Home birth is a valid option. I had two births in a hospital, one at home. Birth centers are options. They are much more oriented toward giving the birthing body what it needs, allowing you to have these very simple things that you need. And in the book, I sort of open and close with my home birth experience because of how powerful it was, how in charge I felt. I don't know if I've ever felt more powerful than I did giving birth to my third kid at home because my provider, I mean, she just trusted me to do my thing. I had a midwife, I had a doula, I had a really attentive partner, and they were just so supportive of me throughout this experience. And I learned how I practiced relaxing into a contraction instead of fighting it. And that's possible for all of us. With the right amount of support, we know that fear and the light shining and the strangers and all of that stops labor. And then we're even more threatened by that cascade of interventions that wants to rush us through this process. But if we can be in an environment and with providers who believe that we can do this, which all of the evidence points to like we can, then we can feel so much power. And the other thing that I say about choosing a provider, there's a lot of power in that choice. We as birthers in this country, like it or lump it, we're consumers. We have the opportunity to choose providers. And, you know, the first provider I ever saw my first pregnancy was a midwife in a fancy neighborhood that a lot of people I trusted were like, yeah, go to, definitely go to her. And I did not have a good visit with her. And she like couldn't find my vein. And I have like awesome veins. And she was just like poking around and didn't want to answer my questions. And like we had one visit and then I decided to go somewhere else. My insurance actually did not allow me to go to, at the time, the birth center that I wanted. So I wasn't able to make that choice, but there are lots of ways. I mean, Medicaid pays for about half of births in this country, and there are ways to sort of find what you want and need sort of within that system. Even in New York City, there's an incredible program that helps folks of a certain income level access low and no-cost doula support because the city has seen the research on doulas and how they reduce C-sections and how they reduce birth trauma and how they um, make people appraise their experiences better. And so New York City is really pushing offering doulas, and it's a model that other states are copying. And there are a lot of public and private partnerships to kind of get more doulas happening, more doulas in birth rooms. The Mama Glow Foundation is a big part of this. There are options. There are many more options than there ever were before, and they're not just for people of privilege. So I find that to be incredibly encouraging. And What I know at the end of the day is there's nothing more powerful than growing a person in your body and giving birth to it. And we have to keep our eye on that. Like that is absolutely so much power. What you said earlier too is the ability to understand what's going on. So like communication. I don't know if that's one, but darkness, controlled breathing, closed eyes, 
quiet, physical comfort Got it. and solitude. Physical comfort. That's amazing. I'm writing this down. You also will have it in the notes. I love this. I think about this as it intersects with the way that women are gendered in our current society. And if I were telling people listening, I think there's a lot of stuff that is not familiar to the gendering of women that is also really important. Like you're allowed to say no. You're allowed to tell other people what to do. You don't have to be likable. Other people's feelings are not your responsibility. (laughs) Those are also really important. And for me, like in my experience, it was quite remarkable how much I needed those. And as I was going into the labor and come down a four flights of stairs at a brownstone in Brooklyn and we're waiting for a taxi and I have sunglasses on because I want it to be dark because everything's hurting my eyes. So I'm wearing sunglasses and the taxi driver starts talking to us for the hour long ride. And I barked, quiet. Like that's all I could do from the back was like, shut it. And they did. They all just shut it. And I think that blessedly, my needs were so clear and my capacities so focused that I couldn't do anything else but that. I was like, can you please be a little, can you keep it down? Like, I would be really nice if you, I was like, shut up. Those things I would layer on, you get the physical, the environmental, and then also tell people what to do. I wish we had a phrase. Like, I wish I could just sarcastically say to them, are you the one giving birth? Right? If somebody tells me what to do. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure to say on this conversation for our listeners? People often ask me who the book is for. And while, you know, I think it's for everyone, we're all born. I say that it's for three pretty distinct groups of people. And they are people who are pregnant or want to be. They need to read birth control so that they understand the landscape of care in this country and what they can do to keep themselves safe and have an empowering birth. And then the second group is people who have already given birth, like us, who maybe it didn't go quite as we expected. And we deserve some validation around that. I hope that people who've given birth find that validation in my book. And the third group is providers. I mean, people go into this profession because they are heroes. And they really want to take care of women. And they're being hamstrung and thwarted in this effort by hospital systems who are pushing profits and fearing litigation. And so many providers, the providers are my sources in the book, and so many have reached out to me to express their gratitude and to say that they feel validation too. They see their experiences here. So I just want to make sure that everyone can sort of access this as a starting point for a conversation. So many have been working at this issue for decades, longer than I started reporting on it, but I want to be part of a conversation starter around how we can improve birth in this country. Yeah, I love that so much. And people listening, you know that I say this about every single book, but go buy it and donate it to a library, put it in the little book. What are they called? The little libraries in the neighborhood. Give it to a friend. Use it to start a book club. I am such a fan of buying books to support these ideas getting out in the world. So listen to this podcast and then go buy it for someone because that's the way you say, I want to talk more about this. This podcast meant something to me and I want to go. It also really helps authors get to keep writing. So buy the books. It's called Birth Control. I'll show a picture. I I have it here. So if we get to put this on um, 
the social medias, the little spaces on the internet where we're supposed to talk about the stuff. It's called Birth Control, The Insidious Power of Men Over Motherhood. This is Allison Yarrow's second book. What was your first book? It's Yarrow, actually. Sorry. No, <laughs> Yarrow, it's totally Thank fine. you. Don't worry about it. My first book was called 90s Media, Culture, and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality. Thank you so much. I pronounce a lot of things wrong in my life, but thank you for correcting me. That's really wonderful to no see your name right. The last thing for people who were listening to the conversation about postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, postpartum PTSD, the fact that that might not be in there. We run a number of women's groups and conversations groups at Startup Parent. And one of the things that I hear often is people say, I didn't know that irritability was a sign of postpartum depression. I didn't know that rage was a sign of postpartum depression. I didn't know that this is what it looked like. So if you are feeling irritable or frustrated or overwhelmed or lonely or any of those things, go look out for yourself. There's a high percentage of people that deal with this. You're not alone. And people like Allison and me and others are doing our best to put more resources out there to get more support for mothers and birthing people and fathers and everyone in between. Allison, thank you so much. Where can people find out about you? Where can they follow you and find you? I'm Ali Yarrow, A-L-I Yarrow, on Instagram, on Twitter, on all the places. Yeah. And what are you working on next? Uh, what am I working on next? I mean, right now I'm just sort of talking about this so often. I'm starting to write a little bit. I don't know where it's going yet, though. But what you were just saying made me think of something, which is that, so I had postpartum anxiety, and I would say probably also depression after my third kid. And I had just, before giving birth to him, spent the previous few months researching and writing the mental health, the postpartum mental health chapter. And so I think I probably did it in a sense to like protect myself against it. But I also thought like, this is my third kid. I didn't have these complications with other pregnancies and births. Like I'm probably fine. But then I totally like had the thing that I had been researching and I didn't know it. And I couldn't like, you know, you said like not recognizing symptoms. And I yeah. totally was like Googling like heart palpitations. <laughs> like, yes. I was like, like nursing, Googling these symptoms. And then I kind of finally like light bulb moment. Oh, okay. And so I knew enough to kind of get help, but it yeah. was even sort of reporting on this issue. I had trouble seeing it in myself. So I understand why it can be difficult. It's so hard to see. It's so hard to know. You're just making it through one bleary eyed day at a time. And if you're going longer than a month being like, I just need to get sleep, the sleep will fix this and it's not helping. Sometimes something else might be it that's the way it was for me. It was like, if I could just get a night of sleep. And then I realized actually that I was impeding my sleep. The anxiety was making it harder for me to sleep. And I was caught in that loop. But also it's really hard to see yourself. And this is why we need other people who know us to be able to check in with us and look for us. It's currently an individualized problem of, oh, like you should take care of yourself. Do you know how hard it is to find a therapist when you are depressed? That is a really, really, really big ask to make of someone who is recovering from potentially traumatic birth or a routine birth, which is still requires a lot of recovery and then is going through sleeplessness. So we got to get better help out there. This is another empowering thing, though, this story sharing, right? We are not invited. I that you said this. Nobody wants us to tell our stories. But if we tell each other our stories, guess what? We don't feel as alone. We feel more powerful because we know what's possible. 
Oh, that's why we do these stories on the podcast, too. That's 100% why. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to talk to you. This is wonderful. I want to tell you a couple of things that people have said about the Wise Women's Council. One of our members said that business support is top notch. On one of our calls, one person said, my mind is already blown and we're only seven minutes in. Hillary said, Sarah, you are one of the best facilitators I have ever met. And Dana said, if you're somebody that regularly designs community or holds space for other people, here's a place where you don't have to because Sarah has figured it all out for you and you can just be when you're in this space. Caroline said once on a call, she said, I'm normally one of those people that's thinking all the time about how you can facilitate something better. And Caroline said, I don't have to do that when I'm with you. Michelle said it's one of the only places she doesn't have to code switch between so many different identities. She doesn't have to hide being a mom. She doesn't have to hide being a business owner. She doesn't have to explain herself over and over again to different people and have them not understand her. If you are living at the intersection of parent, mom, business owner, leader, entrepreneur, facilitator, or you are running a company, come check out the Wise Women's Council. That's a place I made for you. It's what I needed when I first became a parent, and we've been running this program for six years. Head to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council and apply to join us today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And thank you to our guests whose time, energy, and insight are so helpful. And thank you for being a listener. You can find out more about our guests in our show notes and on our website, startupparent.com. I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run Book Club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host book club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of book club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members and that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase. That's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks, and I'm going to let you discover them when you go to our Substack. 
Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here and I will see you on the next episode.